Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by Patty Sharp, an occupational therapist who has spent several years working with pediatric patients who sustained burn injuries. She discusses the role of occupational and physical therapists in a burn unit, what makes treating kids different, and strategies for treating kids who have sustained life-altering burn injuries. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Patty. So hey everyone, we have Patty with us tonight and she's going to be talking to us about the specialized area of treating pediatric burns. And Patty, just give us a little bio about yourself, where you're currently working and what you're doing. Okay. Hi, I am Patty Sharp. I am a pediatric OT. I've been a pediatric OT for a decent number of years at this point, anywhere above 20. (laughs) I started my career in pediatric burns. It was inpatient pediatric burns at Shriners Hospital for Children in Cincinnati, which is a hospital completely just for kids with burn injuries. So that's all I did for nine years. And it was great. I moved into neuro outpatient neuro rehab at Cincinnati Children's after nine years, took a lot of my, the information from Burns with me and it really worked to implement some of the stuff, especially in terms of scar management and like how to rehab a child and not miss like joint involvement and skin involvement and all this stuff that can come with, with big traumas and stuff. I went back and got my OTD in 2012 and I did my work there on pediatric burns and scar management and bringing that into general pediatrics. And at this point, I work in outpatient developmental pediatrics. So I kind of shifted gears, but it seems everything at this point in my career kind of piles on top of the rest of it. So I still do a fair amount of kind of specialized care in terms of I do compression therapy and see some lymphedemia, vascular malformations, then some of the hand stuff like brachial plexus injuries, casting and splinting in that. And then, yeah, just regular old developmental pediatrics. So there you go. So what made you want to get into the area? I know you you said it was a couple of years ago that you were doing it, but like what made you want to get into that area? Was it kind of just by chance or was it something you were interested in? So, you know, whenever I teach about burns to OT students, I always talk about when I was in school and we had the burn lecture, I was like in the back and I was like, oh, that's so gross. Like I couldn't fathom it. You know, there was a picture of like hands with like the pins coming at the K wires and stuff. And I was like, oh my God. But my boyfriend at the time, he moved to Cincinnati and I was looking for pediatric rotations. And one came up at Shriners Hospital, which I found out was all burns. So then I, I just, started looking for opportunities in burns to it so I could see if it made sense. I did a level one field work at Johns Hopkins to see if that would, you know, if it would fit. And it did. Like it was scary. It's overwhelming. But I was really attracted to the biomechanical aspect, the acuity of it. You see results right away. Like you're working on somebody who really needs it and you see improvement pretty visibly and pretty quickly. So yeah, I set up a level two. It was like an extra level two at Shriners Hospital here. And I just fell in love. I mean, it was just 
like I think in pediatric burns, it's like you love it or you hate it. Like there's, it's not like, oh, I'll just show up to work here. Like it's, it's something that you, you have to feel good about doing because there's a lot of things that are pretty tricky. So yeah, I think I, I mean, I kind of fell into it, but it also feels like it was what I was meant to do for a really long time. And it's something that I still, I mean, it's part of who I am as a therapist even today. But it wasn't like I, yeah, I never had thought about like, I'm going to be a burn therapist. Like it was never, <laughs> never, you know, it just yeah. wasn't on my radar at all. Yeah. You had mentioned that you did extensive work in SCAR management. So what were you finding at the time that was beneficial for SCAR management with this population? So with pediatric burns specifically? Yeah. Okay. So I mean, the research is pretty solid at this point in terms of what we can do conservatively with an active burn scar. And it's been pretty stable. Like there hasn't been a ton of changes in the science in, in terms of what like a therapist can actually what anybody can do with like that much scarring. So it's compression therapy is kind of the standard range of motion, compression therapy, scar massage, splinting and casting when needed. But those are, I mean, it's just kind of this the same stuff. There's always this, I don't want to say argument, but there's always people asking the question, which I think is great. Would it make a difference if we do, you know, if we spend this whole year, this whole first year post-burn and post-graft doing compression therapy, right? With pressure garments, you know, and we, there's different orthoses you can use for the face and stuff. Would it be the same if we spent that whole year doing compression therapy or if we just waited? Like if we just did nothing, would the scars kind of settle out after that year. And I think the research falls on the side of the pressure therapy is beneficial, Mm -hmm. but there's always those people that, you know, like it's hard to, it's hard to study how much pressure is actually being given and how it's being given, you know, especially in concave areas. So, you know, it's always kind of under debate, especially given that it's, it's not a super comfortable intervention and it, you know, it's visible, but when when I did my doctoral work, I did like a big old systematic review on how therapists can intervene. And the literature shows that pressure therapy, so compression garments really improve scar height. So helping them settle down and the redness. Mm -hmm. So those things are significantly impacted by pressure therapy. So that's kind of the standard. And I, yeah, like, I don't think a ton has really changed. There's different garment companies, you know, they come out with different different fabrics and stuff, but really things haven't changed much. One thing that has been kind of popping up more in the past like 10 years or so is the use of silicones and the use of like silicone gel, not just as compression, but silicone itself as being beneficial to help the collagen fibers realign and stuff. So I know there is some evidence that shows that silicone is better than like a hydrogel or, you know, just adding the compression itself. That helps too. So you mentioned earlier that even just stepping in to or at OT school, you saw this as a very intimidating field and it can be some people would just go, oh, no, this is not for me. What would your advice be if we had people that might be interested or our students or someone who might be faced with this in a, a new job or whatever? What would your advice be to them? when they are stepping into this area, especially working with kids, because you throw that layer on top of sure, it as sure. well, what would your advice be to sort of 
get past that and or so that they can get their feet wet and yeah. move along in this area? Yeah, no, really good question. And honestly, like I want to think back and I'm like, what was the thing that propelled me forward? I, I think it was, you know, how in OT school, like everybody wants to do peds. So I was like, I don't want to do peds. Like I, you know, I'm going to be like, whatever. I thought I wanted to do brain injury, which is great. I've done also, but I was born a pediatric OT. Like I was born to work with kids. I don't speak adult. So like, I think it was that, that I knew that Shriners Hospital was in Cincinnati. I went to grad school in St. Louis and there was a Shriners Hospital in St. Louis there, there an orthopedic hospital, but I had done a ton of volunteer and observation work there. And I just loved the Shrine you know, the hospital, the philosophy and their freedom to work with kids. You know, they were nonprofit at that point. So I think it was like that I knew that Shriners was here. And if I could wrap my head around Burns, then I would, I could get into Shriners. And and I think that was my goal. That was what was pushing me forward. So I don't know if I would have pushed myself had that not been the thing, but I will say it's, if you can be brave enough to walk into the room, and then just like, nothing's going to happen. Like it, you know, it just seems really intimidating. It's like going into any patient's room where there's a lot of like events and tubes and all this stuff. And it feels really like, I don't know, you almost go like fight or flight almost like you need to help or, you know, get somebody to help. And if you can just chill and let whoever is showing you around do the talking, just listen. But I think if you can just be in the room then you'll give yourself the opportunity to interact with the patient or the family or the nurse. And then everything kind of, at least for me, it kind of faded away. I'm like, okay, so there's still a little girl there and she's funny and she's not in pain all the time, that kind of stuff. So I don't know. It's so worth it. I wish more people could see it and get over some of that because it's, it's really cool. And man, you can see, you learn the whole body as a a burn therapist, generally, we don't separate OT and PT. So I was doing lower extremities and toes and the PTs did like faces and hands and stuff. So, I mean, just really helped me learn that everything's connected to everything. So it's not like OT stops here. It's just been really beneficial. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think of anything else. I mean, the people in general, you know, like if you go on field work, how dependent it is on your your supervisor or the people that you can get to mentor you. But if like you can find someone who's passionate about burns or any kind of trauma, that's who you want. That's who you want. Cause they are, they see way more than the tubes and the bandages. And and I will say when I did work at Shriners and I was trying to get students to come observe and I'm like, it's not a sad place at all. You know, and, and adult burn units, the same thing. It seems like it would be really sad, but it's not kids are up if they can be, they're clean, they're in clothes, they're talking, it's trauma. So the team bonds and the team bonds with the families. So it's not a painful experience to walk into that hospital. And yeah, so if you can just walk in, I think you can, you see so much. So when you do walk in that first time, when you're walking into the room and you're there to do the assessment, I would assume you do assessment bedside at first. Oh, yeah. Um, where do you start? Because you have to look at the person as a whole or the child as a yeah. whole. Where do you start? So so if we get a new admission, so it's a, an acute burn, we didn't have an ER. So 
when they got to us, they were alive and they were generally going to stay alive for at least a bit. I'm not saying they're stable, but they, they were alive. So everybody wants to be in that first dressing change where they take down whatever was put on them before, because that's where you're going to see everything. I need to know when the burn happened. That's going to tell me a lot because a burn happens. It takes five to seven days for everything to, to demarcate. Like the burn happened on Monday. It may not show how deep that is until like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I need to know when it happened. And then really my, you know, at first I'm looking at every joint that that burn crosses because that's where all my work is going to come into play. So I'm just, you know, jotting down what joints are involved. Range of motion, nothing's going to be really limited for a while. So I don't need to get in there unless a joint is compromised. So like if, you know, all the tissue is gone, then I would be the one kind of dictating to nursing staff, like, let's put a splint on this or let's make sure that this doesn't move this one way. But in general, it's really just when did the burn happen and what joints are are involved. And then we'll be looking at that every day for the next week or so to see, oh, this part really is much deeper than we thought. We'll, we'll see it kind of changed. And oh, this part's healing. So I don't need to worry about that joint. So at what point do you begin to bring in? I mean, I'm sure you start right from the beginning. You said they're up, they're in clothes. What point do you bring in you know, play and interaction and just getting the patient or the family involved and participating in what you want to do? You know, it depends on so many factors. First of all, they have to be stable. And that's kind of out of my realm, right? Like they need to be medically stable. So that's up to the physicians and the nurses. And I'm aware of how stable or unstable they are. And if they're unstable, if there's an infection brewing that they can't get their hand, you know, on top of, or if their respiratory status is tanking, or, you know, if, if any of those things are going on, I'm just, I'm popping in, I'm seeing what's going on, I'm introducing myself, I'm, I'll let the family know I'll be involved later. But, you know, there's not a ton for me to do. Once they're stable, like we're pretty assured, like there's no massive infection, we've got you on all your meds, you're, breathing, we've got nutrition in you somehow. That's when I'll introduce myself to the family and start telling them what the next year is going to be like. So really early, it's a lot for a non-medical person to wrap their head around, like what needs to be done. So they basically need to learn to be a burn nurse and a burn therapist because they're taking this child home and the care lasts a long, long time. So I think it's important to start teaching them early and then it's really, really important to get buy-in in terms of home programming. So it's interesting, you know, now working in developmental pediatrics, home programming like is like, you know, go practice your shoe tying or your coloring or whatever. And I know how many people actually do their home programming. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not as much as I want. But in terms of burns, if you don't do the home program, if you don't do every joint as much as you're supposed to do, you're going to get a contracture, you're going to end up back in the hospital. So the stakes are much higher. So I need to make sure that they understand that. So I, you know, I'm starting that right away. We will involve a family in doing the stretching and the range of motion, the massage as early as Again, it depends on a lot. If they're there and they're they're willing to be involved, I'll encourage them to get their hands back on their child so that they can reconnect with their kid and they can feel empowered to be 
involved in their care. If they're scared, if they're nervous, overwhelmed, all that, it's okay. We don't need to involve them in actually doing that until, I don't know, probably a month before they're going home, you know, but it takes a while. They've got, again, they've got to kind of show that they can do everything that nursing and and therapy does before they go. In terms of the kids, so, you know, I think child life, child life specialists are key here. I'm sure they are for every child in every hospital, but it seemed like this was such an essential part of what was happening in pediatric burns. They are the ones that got to do the play and they did play multiple times a day. They had groups and stuff like that. And I mean, I think because the the therapy is so time consuming, it's holding stretches at joints, you know, wherever the burn happens at least twice a day. So, you know, it it can take a couple hours to do a, a therapy session. Play wasn't at the center of what we were doing. And I don't think I realized how, how much most pediatric therapists do play, you know, until I left Burns. But we did try to follow every kind of passive range of motion session if the child was alert and awake with some functional activity. So, and that it really depends. We generally need them sitting up at least, you know, not necessarily sitting in a chair, but sitting up in bed. They need to be cognitively present. They need to be awake, not in pain all the time. So it's not right away that we start doing functional skills. It's more as most of their surgeries are done. They are in some compression. It's not like that early phase where we're just trying to get graft adherence. But, you know, we try to follow any kind of, you know, if I range your shoulders, then I'm going to bring you to the gym and we're going to work on tossing a beach ball or things like that. The play and the functional skills we did in the hospital, I will say are, they're just less functional than what I do now just because you're in the hospital and you're sick and you're not, you're not at home. So like, it's, it's hard to even talk about. So what's the problem at home on a daily basis? Because like your life is, you know, everybody's life is upended by a child's burn injury. Right. And you're, so, you're focusing on more the medical. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it at that yeah. point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, thinking back on it now, I'm like, oh, I, did I even ask if they liked to play beach ball? But, you know, like really, again, you're just trying to follow it with some active movement that isn't just focused on me stretching your skin. Patty, I want to go back to a field that you just mentioned that sure. plays a big part. Child life specialists. I work in peds and they are angels of the oh hospital. My so <laughs> they much. are so helpful. And I think yes. you're right. They are. And I I think even in an outpatient setting, so I work alongside a hand surgeon and we are fortunate enough to have a child life specialist. I mean, their goal there is to make these children comfortable and cope with their procedures or their hospitalizations. And they can be so helpful in an outpatient setting as well. And I think that's something even to mention when treating these patients, like if they are coming through our hand clinics even yeah. whether you're treating adults to remember, no, you're not a child life specialist, but maybe implement some right. of their strategies that sometimes just yes. getting these kids distracted or yeah. whether it's getting an iPad or some yeah. sort of a toy or whatever that you can distract them so that they can tolerate this procedure. So yes. if you have access to child life specialists, be so grateful. And if you don't, maybe reach out and find ask them all the things, all the tips. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I learned so much from child life without realizing it, but go ahead. 
I'm going to go back and for us that don't know what a child life special oh, sure. is. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I don't actually, you know what? I should probably look up a definition. Maybe somebody should, but their job is, I mean, they go to school all about child development. So, you know, if they see a kid, they kind of know where they are developmentally, you know, emotionally, cognitively, all that. And then their job is to make them feel comfortable and like a child even though they're in the hospital or they're sick. And I do think a lot of their, I don't know if this is formal, but they do so much education too. So clearing things up, you know, kids get all these, we say it's an IV and they think like a tree's growing out of their arm, you know? And it's so like child life knows that and they're really good at, you know, educating a kid at a level that they can understand. But, you know, at least in inpatient or for procedures and stuff, their main job would be to, I don't want to say it's not always distraction, right? Because sometimes mm-hmm. it's fully like, let's embrace this and we'll teach you some coping skills and breathing mm-hmm. exercises, but it's getting them through whatever's happening, feeling in somewhat control, feeling safe, feeling like a kid again. So they end up doing a lot of distraction or it looks, you know, like families who don't know are like, oh, the toy lady. <laughs> they come, you know, they come <laughs> and they've got all these great age appropriate toys. But the idea is that, like, remember that you're a kid. Here's some things that you can do. I'm going to connect with you. You know, at least at at Shriners, they used to not put on the same gowns as we did because, you know, we would put on the yellow gowns and sometimes the kids would start to cry. The child life specialist didn't put on the yellow gowns. And I was always super jealous of that. Like, (laughs) I don't want to be the one to make them cry. But also, (laughs) that's my role and I embrace it. But, you know, they're safe. So that a lot of coping skills and yeah, getting the kid to get through the procedure, feeling okay. And that'd be great to do, you know, even in, I think we've got, um, you know, at Cincinnati Children's, I think we have the largest child life department in the country that I don't even know how many there are, but they've got them around for the ERs and for the clinics mm-hmm. and stuff. I don't work at the main hospital, but at the main hospital, they're everywhere. And I mm-hmm. think that's why, I don't know, I think it can, it makes your hospital a safe place for kids by having yeah, child life. They're sure. so, so beneficial. So I will say like things that I learned from them, man, just for an example. So I do see, I do. So Shriners in Cincinnati recently moved up to Dayton, Ohio. So it's complicated with reasons they like the Shrine Brothers, whatever the Shrine institution itself. There's been a lot of changes and whatever, but they moved up to Dayton. They're a smaller hospital. So now since it's like an hour away from Cincinnati, So Cincinnati Children's is now seeing some burns, you know, smaller burns and stuff. So I, I'm one of the therapists who will get those kids following that. And it's great. I'm like, I know all this, you know, so I'm the one that's seeing, you know, giving the range of motion exercises, teaching the family how to do it. It's on the back end a little bit because I'm not inpatient, but I'm I'm doing the same stuff. But for example, I had a family come in and their kiddo had, I don't think he ended up having surgery, but he has, you know, big raised scars on his neck and down one arm. So he needed a lot of range of motion, scar massage, neck, shoulder, arm, down the hand. And I think he was like two. So by the time he came to me an outpatient, he had already gotten his pressure garments from another therapist. He got that set and the family had the stretches they were supposed to be doing. And the mom, the dad, and the little boy, they came in, they were all in tears. I mean, it was like, you know, it was trauma every single time they were doing this. And Luckily, I was like, okay, let's back up. Like, I'm just going to let him play and we're going to approach this completely differently. And I think I learned how to approach it 
from child life. What they were doing was, okay, buddy, now it's time for your stretches. And they were waiting for permission. Or, you know, it'd be like if you're going to give a kid a shot. Okay, you ready? (laughs) Are you ready? Okay, are you ready? It's fine. It's totally fine. Here's all these toys. You know, they're trying to get agreement with full awareness. And it's just not going to happen. So I was able to be like, let's get him comfortable. Let's get him out of his garments. We're going to put him in a little seat where I have access to his arm. And then we're going to put on his favorite thing to watch, which was all about bulldozers or something. YouTube bulldozers for like 24 (laughs) hours in a row. Right. Had it on, gave him a snack with his other hand. And then I just started by putting my hands on him and letting him get comfortable and then starting to range. So I think I learned those things from child life where I don't have to get agreement. It's okay to kind of sneak it in. If I can connect with the kid without, like, you feel like you have to tell people everything you're going to do, but that's not necessarily true. If I can get my hands on them and just make them comfortable, let them know I'm, you know, you're safe. I got you. Watch your bulldozers. Then Mm -hmm. we can get it in. And it was so transformative for this family to see that, okay, we can get it in and it doesn't have to be re-traumatizing all of us every day. I like what you just said that they don't have to know everything. And I think sometimes less is more. If you don't explain, like, yes, people want to be in the know and they want to understand and maybe the parents do, but sometimes it can be so just intimidating and shocking and frightening for a child to hear every single thing that you're going to do. If you can have them focus on something totally different and you can get your job done and then you move on and it is somewhat less traumatizing. Yeah. I will say, I think the big thing is we need to establish trust. So I am going to say I'm doing something. If they say, is it going to hurt? I'm going to say it might a little bit, but I'm going to do my best. I will back off if you, Mm -hmm. if it hurts really bad and then I have to back off, you know, so it's just really establishing that trust, but I don't need to tell them I need to stretch your arm all the way up to the top. And then I'm going to hold it there for three minutes while I'm like, that is not necessary. I just have to tell the truth. And sure. super, super, super simple, you know, and I use that in other areas of therapy too. But I, again, I think that I'm just realizing now, I think, like I learned that stuff from child life while they are sitting here, like talking to the kid and I'm just doing my therapy. I'm like, oh, well, we don't have to go into every little detail and I do not have to get agreement. You know, I just mm-hmm. have to, I have to be honest and then just do it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I always tell families too. I'm not going to bribe you to do your therapy, just like I don't really bribe you to brush your teeth, you know, and it's just, it's time for therapy. I'm going to do it. And as much as it pains me to see you in pain, I'm going to check myself out of this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be like, oh, baby, I'm so sorry. And I'm not going to celebrate when it's over. I'm not going to say, oh, thank goodness that's over. I'm just going to be like, okay, therapy, all done. Good job. I love you so much and walk away. And then I can go deal with my own emotions separate Mm -hmm. because they, they are playing off of us and this is necessary. We just, we have to do it. It's time for your medicine. You're going to take it. Good job. I love you. Done. You know, versus the trying to get buy-in. They're not buying what we're selling and nor should they. It's (laughs) comfortable. Yeah. I've had plenty of kids that like I'm seeing for scar contractures or whatnot, they've been treated by burn. They've been treated by that team in the hospital and they've gone through a traumatic episode. They come to me, they immediately start crying. And I'm like, 
yeah, but we've got a job to do. And if we can get through and get this done and we do, and sometimes we don't, I be honest, I have had a patient recently that it wasn't going to happen. And so I had to stop and say, Hey, parents, this isn't going to happen, but here's some strategies that you can do. We aren't going to get a a splint on your kid's hand today, but Here's what you can do to affect the range of motion. Try a stuffed animal to hold their hand open. Try a roll of of cotton. Try other things. And then maybe in a month or two, we can try again. Like we're not so far behind the eight ball that we can't affect this in a month or so. But right now we aren't going to be effective. None of us are going to be effective. Right, (laughs) right. Yeah, like it doesn't do anybody any good to just yeah traumatize your way through the end and then be mad at them for not doing it and then be mad at ourselves for being mad. And then, yeah. So I I like that. Like it might not happen today. Also, Mm -hmm. maybe it won't happen with therapy. Maybe this is something we do need to talk to surgery about, Mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe this needs, we need to deal with this in a different way. And that sometimes can be like almost a pride thing. Like I want to be the one to like turn around this contracture or save it or change everything. And sometimes it's just not within therapy's power. A lot of times it's not within therapy's power. And that goes, you know, for scars in general too. Like I can give you tools to make your scars look better to an extent, but this is something you were asking, like how, you know, how early do I involve the family? Very early on, you know, as soon as I'm interacting with the family, your child's going to have scars. They're going to look different and we will do everything we can do to make them look the best they can and we'll definitely get them to be able to do everything they need to do, but they're going to have scars because it's just not, it's not within anybody's potential to make that not be there. So how is treating pediatrics different from adults? So this was interesting. I've never worked with adults beyond field work and I did not like it. Um, adults are so big and hairy. Like they're just not, you know, it's just a different. And like, oh my gosh, I was thinking like a splint for an adult, that's so much material like compared to like, you know, like, like oh my God, you guys must go through so much stuff. But anyway, what makes it different in the lecture that I did for ASHT that I recorded, I think I touched on it in in several different areas, but I've never really reflected on it. But I think things that make it different are kids don't need to know everything and they don't need to give us permission to save their function. We just do it, right? So that's one of them. Another thing is they're growing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like an adult, they get a burn injury, they get a graft they're generally not going to change size that much. But if you, you know, if you think of an infant, I use the analogy, like if you put a onesie on an infant, thinking of that as a skin graft, and then you just keep that onesie on the child as they grow into a teenager, there's going to be a lot of things that happen, even if we do everything right, right? Because hypertrophic scar tissue does not grow and move like regular skin. So sometimes that scar does grow and, and accommodate growth really well. A lot of times it's the other skin around the area will compensate. So you get more growth around it and it seems like the scar is shrinking, but it's really just everything else is growing around it. And then a lot of times what is a perfectly healed graft that moves really well and allows range of motion on an infant becomes a contracture later on just because the child kind of outgrew it. So that's something, you know, just from a biomechanical standpoint that is different with pediatric burns. Other than that, we have to remember that they're kids and not forgetting that what their occupations are and what they have in their future. So there's just a lot of things to think about 
when you're working with a kid that may be different. And I don't know, I don't work with adults, but maybe for an adult, an older adult, they're like, mm, I'm good with 90 degrees at my shoulder. I, I mean, I don't know if that ever happens, but like for a kid, I would never ever let that happen, right? Like I would never be like, oh, you only work in this factory where you just move this way. We're going to go for all of it all the time, even if you can't get it. So another thing is kids are so resilient and parents always have the concern. They're like, oh, kids are so mean. I know one thing I do want to talk about. Kids are so mean, they're going to get bullied. And I that's just never been my experience as a mom, but also just working with so many kids with various disabilities, like they're just, kids are not. Kids are adaptable. They will notice differences and then they will have questions. And if we can address those questions, I think kids are just really cool and open and they just like, they adjust to things really well. If they're mean, they've been taught to be mean or they're hearing mean things, you know, from parents and stuff like that. So I'm I'm always trying to kind of, to educate around that. So in that same vein, I talk a lot early on about let's prep for the first time you take your kid to the grocery store and someone stares at them because it will happen. And I do this even with like constraint, you know, kids who were constraint induced movement. I'm like, let's prep for the first time someone asks you why your kid has a cast on. Like, let's just prep for what it's going to be. But there's a lot, you know, a lot more emotion involved in something as traumatic as a burn. I give my spiel about how it's important to share information that they're we should give people the benefit of the doubt. They're not coming at it with cruelty, but just they don't know. And I try to have people practice like, oh, they were in a burn and they were in a fire and they got burned and they're doing much better now. Thanks for asking and move on. You know, so something simple, rehearsed because they're going to have to do it and then close it up if they want. And if I can get families to do that, I think them going out and feeling like they're not so much of a victim, that part is so much better. But they do have to practice it and they do have to get on board with me that like the world is not mean. You know, and some people just have Mm -hmm. that perspective, like everybody's going to stare at my kid and I hate everybody. So you mentioned about doing that with the parents, but do you do that with the child as well? Especially like school-age children because of course Mm -hmm. they're going to go be going back to school and definitely going to get the... the Yes, absolutely. Yeah, for any kid probably kindergarten and up for the younger kids. They're just kind of in the moment. It doesn't really matter. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was really cool. We called it the school reentry team at Shriners. While the kid was still inpatient, these are bigger burns. So lots of visible changes. While the kid was still inpatient, we sent a therapist or two out to their school, wherever that was. Like I went out to West Virginia a bunch of times and we brought like a, a slideshow of basic burn education this is what happens, this is what your skin does, and pictures of the kid. We brought samples of pressure garments and saying, this is your friend, this is what happened, really kind of clearly what happened, because there's probably all rumors about what terrible thing happened to them. You know, so gave everybody kind of an age-appropriate little presentation before the kid went back. It was so cool. And so like, I feel grateful that I was able to do that, because I think it made a huge difference where the kid goes back, everybody knows they're coming back, everybody knows that they're going to look different, but they're okay. I never get to like be there on the the day they go back. But I I imagine that that made a huge impact. And that was, it was really cool. I don't know if they still get to do that, but a really neat thing that we did. Yeah, that's a really cool program that 
sets the kid up for success and that they aren't having to go back to people having no idea. And you're right. I think that you saying that hearing the rumors and, oh, this injury happened and what are they going to look like? And they hear all the scary stories or they're spreading rumors of what it could potentially look like, but you're setting the stage and you're, I would assume the family's involved and they're able to help what's going to be shared, what's what's yep. going to be put out there. And so they're given a little bit of the control as well. So yep. that's a really cool program. It was really cool. There was one time I, I'm from Minnesota and there was a, a student at a high school in a smaller town that my grandparents lived in who was in a really big fire. And so I got to go out there and that was really cool. Just like, you know, I kind of heard on from the back end from my grandpa and my uncles and, you know, and I know that they welcomed her back, like they were ready. And it was just cool to like be the one to go out there and be like, yeah, set the stage. Everything's fine. This happened. This is what she looks like. And, you know, I hope you're ready to welcome her back. It's really cool. Yeah. I think that can be so beneficial for a lot of areas of pediatric. I mean, I know pediatric hand therapy. I mean, I have had kids that have had sustained traumatic injuries to their hands and people notice your hands. They see your hands, know that. And I've had a patient recently that felt that way. Like, oh my goodness, I don't want to tell people what happened. They're going to spread rumors. And I said, you get to be in charge. You get to be the one to tell the story. And we practice, like you said, practice talking to people. I had different people come up and, and ask him, okay, what happened here yeah. or, or whatever. And he got to use his words and practice what he was going to say to his classmates or to people out in the community. Yeah. Giving yeah. back that control. Yeah. Really, really. Yeah. That's, I think it's so beneficial. Psychosocial component. Oh my gosh. I think that's just like everything, right? Like you asked, <laughs> is there a psychosocial component for the kids and the parents? Yeah. I'm but sure I think as, as like inpatient, I mean, there's a, team of everybody working together. So there's many different disciplines coming together to, to ensure, you know, follow through, even follow through at home. And are they going home to a safe environment and all those things, heaven forbid, like going home to a clean home versus. Oh yeah. I mean, that was a one that's so clean. Yeah. That's a big thing. Yeah. We had a big social work department. So every patient got a social worker and then they got a primary therapist. We had a psychiatrist who was involved in every kid too. I mean, yeah. I mean, thinking back now, I mean, just wow, what the comprehensive care we, we gave to those kids, but also they needed it. Like, I don't know how you would do it Mm -hmm. without, because you're right. Like a terrible thing happened and there may be so many issues around what happened and and why, like a lot of times I think 30% of kids, pediatric burns are intentional or caused by Mm -hmm. neglect, which is Mm -hmm. just yuck. So there's that component. And then even if it's not intentional, like they were in an unsafe environment, like left a crock pot on the ground, you know, that kind of stuff. And then going home, ensuring that it's safe and that they can manage the care. Yeah. All that. So yeah, they just, I mean, just, I think it's so important to make sure all these pieces are in place. Well, now I think we covered everything. <laughs> sure. Yep. From the what do you do on day one to all the spirituality. Yeah. <laughs> Never wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah. Honey, thank you so much for joining us. And, yes, and thank you. I'm sure the listeners will love this episode. But thank you so much. And we greatly appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us on another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. When subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit asht.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Thank you.